We're going to talk to Rob Fulmer. District 36, let's talk to about where that is. It's downtown Portland, swaths of northwest and southwest Portland. This is Jennifer Williamson's old district. The position is now open because she was running for Secretary of State. And Rob Fulmer is here with us now. I can hear him clicking. Rob Fulmer, how are you doing this morning? Excellent. How are you, sir? I'm holding up. Who are you and why are you running? Uh, well, first of all, I want to thank you guys for the opportunity to come on here real quick and, and just mention how honored I feel to come on, on on May Day. And it'll be evident why that's so important to me. But my story is uh, I was brought up by a single mom who really struggled to support me and my brother on her own. Uh, I went to 10 different public schools in three states before I got out of high school. I figured out about the second or third school in the library is a safe space. I spent a lot of time in libraries and across those 10 schools. Uh, I read a lot of books. I uh, got into a great university and I realized just how important public education is in, in providing an opportunity for people to better themselves and, and make a better life. And I, I've dedicated my career to working in education. So I spent my entire career working in education. I've been a labor leader and an activist in, in my union, SEIU 503, for, for many years now. Uh, and I've done a lot uh, for labor, but I'm a labor and education guy. Uh, I'm an environmental guy. And, uh, and I'm someone who's really been active in, in my neighborhood. And I'll get into more of that later. But that's, that's who I am. And why I'm running is we haven't had a, a really strong labor uh, and, and education champion in the legislature, but uh, specifically when it comes to higher education, we need a, a labor leader uh, and an, uh, someone who really cares about higher education in, in Salem in the worst way. We need someone to defend it and someone to expand funding for it to lead that fight. I want to be that guy. I think I heard you say that there hasn't been a champion for labor and education in the legislature. What have they been getting wrong? What What is the most well, palpable evidence uh, that they've been screwing it up? When it comes to higher education, oh, sorry, Jefferson, go ahead. No, no, you can answer the question. But it, not only higher education, but in specific, well, in general education, where, is, where have been the failures? Where has been the lack of advocacy? Who's failed most? Well, I think there have been leaders on education. I mean, if you look at the 2019 uh, session, a lot of folks fought for a really long time to get the Student Success Act passed. Uh, the Student Success Act included no money for higher education. So for higher education specifically, Got it. what I'd say is that there hasn't been anyone uh, who has been able to get improve funding across the table for higher education, which has been going downhill since basically Measure 5 was passed in 1990, and the state needed to uh, backfill K-12 through education because of the way that that changed the property tax system and how it changed how funding has been allocated uh, up through the local government to the state, back to the local government for schools. Since then, student tuition has, uh, for undergraduate resident students, has gone from uh, being a, a situation where the students paid less than a third of the cost of their own education to more than two thirds. And so higher education is, is increasingly unaffordable for students. And 
even when the economy is doing well, there isn't a lot of energy in the building to change that situation. How come? Why I do you think? think why for a variety of reasons. Yeah. What are you think the most important reasons why higher education ends up taking a back seat to everything else and doesn't become a funding priority? I, I think there's been a a lack of trust uh, since since at least 2013 when the Oregon University system was uh, broken up between the legislature and the universities. I think that is due in part to a perceived lack of transparency uh, from the universities, uh, questions about priorities. You see what happened with the uh, uh, firing of uh, President Shoresky at, at PSU and, and how there was a buyout of almost a million dollars. All the highest paid employees in the entire state of Oregon work at our universities. Governor makes $100,000 a year. Presidents of the universities make four hundred, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars a year. I think that I think that that perception makes it very difficult for legislators to justify investing in higher education. And I think I think that's that's a real thing, and it's something that uh, the legislature needs to get their arms around. But I also think that there needs to be an established relationship of trust between the universities and their boards and the legislature in order for the legislature to feel comfortable investing. You served on the Higher Education Coordination Commission, uh, Coordinating Commission, excuse me. That's uh, that's my friend Ben Cannon over there, right? That's right. What did you a learn? very capable leader. No, it's fantastic, dude. The where do you think the financing mechanism is for education? Because there have been rumblings, obviously. People have been concerned about this, complaining about this for a long time. And the and now it does feel at least two things have changed. One is that higher education seems like it might be changing. Maybe it needs to change. It's gotten so expensive for so many people. State schools are still, still pretty affordable relative to private schools. But one thing, it does seem like maybe the education landscape is changing. But the other is now we're in the middle of the global pandemic. We're not going to get in the same room together. And we might have funding priorities just to heck keep the country and keep our states together. What has changed in the landscape of Oregon or the world that might impact your prioritization or how you would approach your higher education priority? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is a this is a new landscape for for a lot of things, um, but higher education is certainly one of them. And with this forced remote learning, uh, it's unclear whether or not the status quo is something that it even makes sense to return to. At the same time, uh, as I talk to my faculty uh, colleagues at the university, we're finding that uh, a sense of place is really important to people in in this time when we're all forced to be apart. And uh, for Portland State in, uh, in particular, what they're seeing is they're not seeing a significant softening of enrollment, which you might expect to see. Uh, in, in times where the country is in uh, economic turmoil or during downturns, the tendency is for there to be an increased level of participation at universities because people, you know, they can't find work. Uh, in this case, they, we don't want people to really be looking for work. So they go back to school. Uh, and we'll expect that that will probably be the case here as well. Now, under under current circumstances, theoretically, you could go back to school anyway, since it's all remote learning anyway. But 
I do think that what we've observed is that students are going to go back to school at, at a place that's familiar to them. And Portland State in particular is a, is a school that uh, attracts people from around the Portland metro area, primarily anyway. But for other schools in the state, I think there will be a lot of pressure on them. Uh, and yeah, I think that there, there could be changes to higher education, potentially to consult, a consolidation. Uh, I think there's gonna be a lot of pressure on the smaller regional schools as a result of this. But education is the ladder to opportunity, and we're gonna wanna make sure that everyone in the state of Oregon who wants to get an affordable, high quality education can do that. And if we continue to disinvest, it's hard to see how that's gonna happen. You talked about wanting to be the labor and education champion and coming out of SEIU. What's SEIU's top priority coming into this next legislative session or maybe their top two or three? Uh, well, I can't speak for SEIU, even what though was on a, the, what was, what were the key member what were the key leader in SEIU. What, what were the key elements uh, of the I'm questionnaire? Not, uh, it's a very large organization full of, uh, you know, lots of, lots of different interests. I mean, their, their most recent campaign has been the Unions for All one, and I think that that's something that really makes sense. Um, the idea of increasingly in our workforce, contingent labor and gig workers is the way that companies want to go. I think that's something that uh, should definitely be resisted because those workers have a huge power mismatch um, with their employers. They have very few rights. They don't get benefits. They're all treated as independent contract contractors. And as a result, we've seen uh, during this downturn, uh, as a result of the the COVID crisis. Those are the workers who were hit almost immediately, if not immediately, and hit the hardest because it, our, our unemployment system, which for the first time ever was extended to them, of course, didn't even, couldn't even accommodate and pay them in a timely way. I would, I would advocate for uh, making, following California's lead uh, in a smart way, making uh, more uh, ideally all, but at least more of those workers, employees, making the benefits eligible, giving them rights, the right to organize, stand up for themselves, and balance that power equation between them and the corporations that employ them. But I think there's more to be done too. Uh, and again, this isn't this isn't necessarily directly aligned with SEIU priorities. But I think that this has made it perfectly clear that we need to make changes to how we think about sick leave, how we think about unemployment insurance. I mean, really, we want a work search requirement for unemployment insurance when no one's supposed to be going out looking for work because of what's, what's been going on with the stay home, stay safe. So I think that the systems that we have, and it's not, not just these, but uh, there are a variety of systems that we have that we've really seen the weakness of those systems under this kind of uh, this kind of healthcare stress. What were other key issues that you know, to the degree that you either talked to about it as a member, that you received questions about it in your endorsement interview, and that you answered questions on the questionnaire? What are the couple key issues for the union? Well, I'm trying to remember, it's been. 
<laughs> I did my endorsement interview in October, but um, what what are certainly key issues is the treatment of workers in the workplace, making sure that workers, the benefits that they have uh, they have negotiated are eroded or undermined. One example of that, I'm sure you've had several conversations about it, uh, is, is Senate Bill 1049, the one that takes uh, money that was allocated to, to folks, uh, represented workers, um, retirement that for, their, for their own sort of 401k equivalent retirement, retirement and putting that into the general pool in a way that it doesn't, doesn't pay directly into their own, uh, their own retirement. I think that that, that kind of thing is, uh, that, that broken promise, that, that breach of trust is something that they are very concerned about. The willingness of uh, legislators that they considered their friends and allies to, to do that. When we know that it, it accounted for less than 10% of the overall savings in that bill, I mean, the great majority of the savings in that retirement bill, uh, that change to the public retirement system was from lengthening the length of the repayment period. So I, I, that's one example of something that I know that that they're very concerned what about. What was your reaction to the vote on the uh, on the whether we call it a compromise or the changes, the PERS vote in the last legislative session? My reaction is that it 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 really is a a, a breach of trust, and it would have been a. Uh, so I, in full disclosure, okay, I'm a I'm a PERS tier three recipient myself, which means that I was hired after the. The substantial changes were made to PERS in 2003 that uh, for workers that were hired after that, the payments that are owed to them uh, as a result of their, their, their work for their retirement are largely, almost entirely covered by what's paid into them. It, it, it balanced the system going forward. For workers prior to that, the that's where the unfunded actuarial liability comes from. It's from those from those workers who were hired before 2003, and the great majority of it actually comes from workers who were hired before 1995. But my reaction to that is that um, eroding, further eroding that system for younger workers is fundamentally unfair, and breaking the promise that was made to workers who were hired before that who had no hand in the decisions that were made by those who were running the system is also fundamentally unfair. And when it comes to treating workers unfairly and breaking promises made to them, uh, that's not an area where I'm going to be willing to compromise. So let's keep that in mind as we grapple with sort of the next question. Uh, the legislature, I think, as you enter it, if you win the Democratic primary, you'll likely then win the general and you'll go to the legislature. And I suspect, feel free to disagree with me if you, if I miss my guess here, but I think the thing that's going to dominate the session, the next probably three sessions, is going to be the state budget. That there's yeah. going to be a, just an evisceration of revenue coming into the state with a lot of long tail obligations and a lot of fixed costs. 
the biggest share of that being personnel costs, including contracts with, most importantly, contracts with the unionized workforce. How would you think through addressing that budget, at least challenge, maybe catastrophe? That's a great question. Uh, I did spend six years as uh, one of the five community budget advisors to the city of Portland, and I was there uh, right after the the last great downturn when uh, Charlie Hale has introduced zero-based budgeting for the city. Uh, I I'm, I'm familiar with the with the bu- budgeting in lean times, but I think you always start with your values when you budget, that the budget is a moral document, and uh, you do everything you can to protect workers and treat them fairly while minimizing the cuts to services that result from that. So what to take, uh, to take one example of, of how you could do that, the state has a a work share option under unemployment insurance where employers can reduce the amount of of hours that workers work while not laying them off and making them un, uh, eligible for unemployment. Very few employers take advantage of that because in our society, unlike in, in economies in, in Europe and countries in Europe in a lot of cases, our our whole system is is predicated on people being entirely removed from their jobs in order to be qualified for unemployment insurance. I mean, it, it isn't really, but that's the perception. So companies just lay people off, then people don't have work, companies don't have workers when the economy returns, and it leads to this cycle of woe. And I think what you can do is you can treat workers respectfully when you need to when you need to make cuts to the budget and reduce hours and keep a larger number of workers available so that when the work comes back, you already have the capacity within your organization. We just don't, we don't think that way here. And I think that's we don't of, We don't think uh, which way. Thinking. We don't think which way. We don't think about respect for workers. We don't think about keeping, retain, trying to retain workers under, in lean times, with reduced hours. It turns out that if if there's a tough job market and you come to a worker who's working 40 hours a week and you tell them, we want everyone in your unit to drop to 30, 30 hours a week, that that's a conversation that those workers are gonna be willing to have with you. And under, under a lot of circumstances, particularly if they know that the job market's really tough and they're gonna have a hard time finding work, they will take that as opposed to having their position be eliminated and having their, you know, their, their co-workers positions be eliminated because the work that even if there's, if there's, you know, slightly less work to do because the economy is slowed, the having workers be eliminated entirely gets you through this, it gets you into this whole cycle of cuts and, and, and rehires. And let's just think about this for a second in the context of COVID. Let's say that as we gradually return to work, phase one, phase two, phase three, potentially, right? That the 
the economy picks up. But let's say that in, in six months, we have another wave. Are we gonna lay all those workers off again? And then rehire them again? I mean, how much does sense does it make to, to not do a, a flexible system where hours are reduced for workers if the work isn't there rather than eliminating them altogether? When we know that we're gonna have potential issues where we need to increase and decrease capacity dynamically to deal with the fact that we may need to, to be sheltering again. To I want to see if I can squeeze in another question or two before we've got to bounce. We're talking to Rob Fulmer's candidate for the state house in Jennifer Williamson's old district in Southwest Portland and beyond. You're listening to X-Ray. By the way, it is the middle of the X-Ray, middle of it's the very last day of the X-Ray fund drive. Wanted to say thank you so much to people who've given, including Kelly Jones. Thank you for your generous monthly contribution. Jackie Murphy, thank you so much, Jackie, and thanks for your service in the foundation world. Uh, Jeff Falcunas, thank you. Jake Kinderchuk, former board member, thanks for your generous $500 pledge this morning. And Bruce Rhodes, thank you to you. If you want to make a gift, now is a marvelous time. It is the last day of the drive, so there's not a better time. 503-233-X-Ray, 503-233-9729. You can also go to xray.fm and click the blue donate button. We're talking to Rob Fulmer. Rob, the Corporate activities tax, the roughly speaking gross receipts tax in the uh, as part of the student success tax, supposed to raise a billion bucks uh, each year, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The now there are just 400 businesses, I think 400 plus businesses who signed a letter to the governor saying, hey, listen, we're now getting charged this thing. Uh, this is the first quarter that it's coming. That bills are coming due. But that was based on. You know, a world before COVID-19, we're now facing a COVID-19 world. Uh, do you think there should be a delay in implementation in the corporate activities tax? I don't. The way that the corporate activities tax was structured was to reflect the amount of business that a company was doing. So for those businesses that have been impacted by this and have been doing a lot less commerce than they would have otherwise been their payments and their estimated payments for those who uh, who are, are expected to owe more than ten thousand dollars because the, the threshold had been five thousand and it had been it, uh, it was it was doubled but that those payments will be lower they'll be significantly lower so because it's it's intended to reflect how much business you're doing and if you're doing a lot less business you owe a lot less tax it's not really necessary to waive this tax or delay this tax because the it's it, it, it's already built in to deal with economic downturns that's what the tax was designed that way uh and the uh, in this in this first quarter we'll see it working as designed when corporations pay a lot less because their activity uh, economic activity has been a lot lower I appreciated what you had to say. I thought it was interesting about shaving hours rather than just shaving overall staffing levels uh, or the move that happened, as I recall. It seemed like one of the main moves during the 2008 uh, crisis, which or Great Recession, which was essentially furlough days. Uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting approach. Any one of the challenges that government faces, unlike, you know, lines, most lines of private business is that during an economic downturn, most lines of economic business have reduced demand. Government during an economic crisis has 
increased demand, maybe less demand for, I don't know, going to a public park, but more demand for human services. So there's this challenge is if we reduce folks' hours, how the heck are we going to, how the heck are we still get that work done? That ends up bringing up pay level questions, ends up bringing uh, up, up questions about benefit levels. I, we have a sense, I think, of your view on that. What about, feel free to you know share more about it if you want, but what do you think about revenue? How do you think about revenue in the context of a downturn? There was, because you say, you know, there's basically borrow, raise revenue, cut costs, right? That's what you get to do when you are faced with a budget challenge. Are there places to raise revenue after there's already been a billion bucks raised from the Student Success Act? Uh, I don't have the expertise in precisely where all those places are. I know some of them. I mean, the the more contentious reduction I know is one of the ones that uh, the legislators have have had their eye on for a while. Um, there are there are others. There's the loop uh, the loophole that was created as part of the grand bargain in the 2013 session for for certain types of businesses that allowed them to, to get a tax break that uh, wasn't really intended for them. Um, but uh, there, there are a variety of places uh, that could we could go in the, in the tax code that I think most Oregonians would agree are uh, not having those in place would be fairer than the tax system that we have now. Um, there are tax incentives or tax expenditures, other ways of way of, 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 of phrasing that, that uh, for, for certain industries that I think people think are pretty questionable uh, when you talk about subsidizing certain industries um, that you could go to, whether or not those are going to be enough to backfill the economic hole that we're going to find ourselves in probably in the May forecast, I doubt it. I mean, there's a reason that you're hearing all this talk at the federal level about providing direct funding to states and local governments, because uh, I think in the absence of that, there are a lot of states. Oregon isn't the only one. There are a lot of states that are going to be in a really tough place. Yeah, maybe. Uh, we do have the fourth healthiest reserve in the entire country per capita uh, because of the the both the the requirement in our constitution that. Uh, when times are better, that money be put it away in the education stability fund and the rainy day fund. But, um, but, and we, and, you know, the legislature has the ability to, in times like this, to, to not do the kicker. Whether or not there's uh, energy and, and will in the building to do that is a separate question. But I think for us to talk about cutting services when we're still kicking money back uh, to, to taxpayers, and the kicker is, of course, re regressive because we have a progressive tax system. I think it's pretty, uh, pretty questionable. You think there's uh, a chance now? You think? Do you think this is going to be a chance to uh, change the kicker? Is the kicker going to kick before we get into before we you know get out of this mess? And do you think there's actually a chance to get that changed? I would like to think so. I, you know, I haven't had the, all the conversations that I would need to have in order to be able to answer that question accurately, but uh, I would like to think so. Whether or not Oregonians will, you know, it will require a, a referral of constitutional change, uh, whether or not Oregonians have an appetite for that uh, when everyone is feeling squeezed and that little bit of extra money might make a difference to them, uh, I don't know. It's just uh, we're the only state that has a kicker uh, and the reason that the other states don't have a kicker is because it's bad policy. 
Rob Fulmer, anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, yeah, if people want to find out more about my campaign, they could go to robfororegon.com. Uh, I did want to mention very quickly that uh, I'm, a, I'm a problem solver. That's, that's what I do in my day job at the university. Uh, and I'm, I'm educated as, a, as an engineer and, uh, and I'm a data-driven guy. Uh, but uh, I really op- uh, I really welcome the opportunity to have, have talked to you on May Day. Uh, May Day is a very important day for labor. I'm a labor guy, and uh, this has been a great a great conversation. Thanks, Jefferson. Really appreciate you taking the time, Rob, and thanks for putting yourself in the mix to serve the people. And really appreciate having a chance to talk to you. Thanks again.